All right, cool. So now, oh, too loud. Bring it down, bring it down, bring it down. All right, so back again to talk about apparatus of capture, so the 13th plateau and 1,000 plateaus, uh, to kind of continue the discussion I had with Curtis about it. Um, and I'll give a little very, very, very brief recap as to what we discussed the last time, but that can be found uh, on this channel. By, I'm sure that YouTube will give the the algorithm will figure out a way to recommend it but if not you know how to get there uh, but before I give this kind of recap or get into it or we get into it Curtis what do you do what's your what's your stick well, I'm a doctoral candidate at Western University uh, study for theory and criticism center for the study of that um, I work on Deleuze and Wittgenstein uh, on the notion of sense uh, concept they both use in their philosophies um, by a sideline as a sort of avid uh, fanboy of Thousand Plateaus and of this chapter in particular uh, as well as um, being interested in notions of uh, rationality and realism in recent continental philosophy right anything else is that your th that's it that's, that's it that's, your <laughs> that's all that's is, the it, is, th is that all is that all? Uh, totally fair. I mean, my my interests are a lot less interesting. Uh, but well, what are your interests, David? Fucking Baudrillard. Everyone, everyone here who's listening to this now knows this. <laughs> or at least if they've if they've had a look at your <laughs> your page. I mean, maybe not so much anymore. I'm trying to trying to branch off, but it's hard. Got a couple uh, of Foucaults in there. I feel like. Couple, yeah, a couple of Foucaults. Some feminist stuff too. But anyways. Um, yeah, so last time we talked about a number of different things from this chapter. So obviously, approaching this chapter from us would not be a great way to go about doing it. Reading it would be the best way. So obviously, I would prescribe that. I would, in fact, say it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, no matter how introductory we are, <laughs> it will do nothing for you unless you read it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, so check it out. Um but as for what we did discuss, so if you were going to go back or didn't have time to go back or wanted to remember what we talked about, uh, the topics that we spoke about were uh, some questions pertaining to why 7000 BC, so the kind of subtitle to the chapter uh, is 7000 BC, or the primary title, I guess, would be 7000 BC, so why? Perhaps that has something to do with uh, an accepted moment a galvanizing moment for this thing called the state although perhaps contemporary archaeology might trouble that a little bit um especially with this dude named graham hancock thinking about how the state goes back maybe twelve thousand years or maybe more uh but yeah I mean, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, any of you who are uh, unfamiliar with uh gobekli tepe is that how you say it yeah uh ancient Lake site tepe. in i think what is now turkey i think so yeah uh very interesting archaeologically and check it out yeah um so the state goes way back obviously uh and even what we didn't think to be states and that's very much what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at here um even those formations that would resemble something preceding a state are in many ways or uh are are states in that they anticipate the logic of a state 
and by virtue of their being able to anticipate it, must in some sense house something of the logic of the state within it to uh, anticipate it and then therefore prevent it. So that's a kind of that's an idea that we kind of touched on last time. Anything else to say about that? I don't think so, and about that in particular. Um, so otherwise, um, it's also this notion of how it is that we can sort of understand the history of state forms. Mm. Um, that is to say, how do we recognize the state in all of its uh, instantiations yep. through history? Um, through that, they come up with a, a notion which they call the Erstadt, which is uh, basically German for like something like the original state. Um, but they take it to be a kind of uh, transcendental form, if you will, uh, in which the state... Um, finds a formal unity um, above and beyond the very real um, differences between historical instantiations of the state. That's going to play into the later stuff that we're going to talk about today. Rock and roll? Yeah. Uh, And then other than that, we talked briefly about what the war machine was, but that pertains primarily to the chapter, the plateau, I guess, chapter that precedes this one. Uh, So... Definitely reading that would be the best way to go about it, but really quickly, the war machine is what exists outside of the state to some extent until the state appropriates it for its own ends. The war machine is occupies or um, takes upon itself a logic that is very counter-state in that it doesn't abide by the same logics, perhaps the same parameters, the same codes that are necessary for state formations. And what else? What else is there about the war machine? Um, well, it's also complexly related to the relationship between nomadism and sedentary uh, life, uh, organizations of life. Um, but for those sorts of details, it would be best to go to that chapter. Yeah. Um, yeah. I personally see this chapter, Apparatus of Capture, and the war machine as kind of like a couple, a couplet or a doublet, if yeah. you will. Um, so if you want to get the whole picture, I think it's best to read them in tandem. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, and I think that, that's it. I don't know what else. Talking about the air stat. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. So if we think of anything else, we can obviously throw it in. Um, but for now, going into today, I think in some ways we're going to try and bring it to uh, a more relevant conversation to some questions pertaining to the present day, that is things dealing with algorithms, uh, big data, stuff like that. Um, because we spent a lot of time in the, the last the last talk we did uh, discussing the history of the state or what it necessarily, how it comes about. Whereas today, perhaps we're going to question what the stakes are for that. What does it mean today for us? So in order to get to that, we have to think about the system we find ourselves in, notably one called capitalism, which I think everyone would be somewhat familiar with, uh, which is an axiomatic, according to Deleuze and Guattari, which is a what? Well, that's a complicated question, but uh, basically what Deleuze and Guattari want to say here in this chapter is that um, so far they've analyzed um, three sort of constituent state formations in relation to the economic systems uh, which they depend upon. So we saw in the case of the Archaic Empire um, the sort of like 
the relationship between um, its overcoding of uh, traditional non-state ritual, which produces its law um, that comes in by virtue of two different powers, which we won't get into here. But um, that ability to overcode comes from a complex relation between um, uh, both non-state actors and also the uh, the incorporation of agricultural surplus into the state form. Right. As we've seen, or at least one at one point mentioned, um, Deleuze and Guattari want to um, they want to problematize the linear relationship that we generally suppose um, in that in that story about the relationship between agricultural surplus and the origins of the state. But nevertheless, this the archaic state in its um, most canonical form does uh, rely on agricultural surplus. Um, so that's one thing. Um, then we see that surplus becoming a stock for different and varied forms of states. Um, so anything from um, the Hellenistic city-state to uh, sort of larger and more connected forms of uh, state activity in the case of feudalism or um, maybe evolved empires uh, rather than the archaic empire. So like things like the Ottoman Empire, for example, would have fit into that. So that would be the second form of the state. So they want to show how the form of organization changes between these as well. It goes from overcoding um, these sort of like more traditional uh, ritual base um, practices from non-state or pre-state actors uh, to one in which the law functions or the organization of the state functions by virtue of what they want to call a topical conjugation. Um, what that means is that uh, the contract or the compact becomes the primordial um, form of social interaction uh, with regard to the regulation of um, both economic and political actors in the state. So here we have, for example, um, the great medievalism of the state, if you will. So all these notions of loyalty or fealty to something would come in at this point because they represent a personal bond that you have, say, between serf and aristocrat or whatever. Then there's this third form that comes along and, um, and it has complex interactions uh, with the former forms, um, but that would constitute the modern nation state. And here we see both um, the form of the archaic state in its overcoating, uh, which is always already public in its function, with the private functions developed in those other, the second form states, like the feudal states, uh, absolute monarchy, and so on, and their interactions. Um, we see those converge upon what they want to call a general conjugation of flows. And this is made possible by the axiomatic of capitalism for them. So what that means is that the nature of the relationship between um, flows, which for them flows include flows of population, flows of good, flows of services, 
um, and a few other things beside. There are certain of those that are more important than others. But basically, they represent the energetic substrate of a society. Um, so labor is a, an extremely important one in the modern era, obviously. Uh, and that's because it becomes the abstracted means of value by which the general relation of production, which we call capital, um, can sort of envelop and extract surplus from. And this becomes true of literally everyone. And that's why it's a general conjugation uh, for them. It becomes true of commodities. It becomes true of individuals. Um, and it, in principle, excludes no one. Whereas, for example, traditional state religion in an archaic empire would only extend, even though it was cosmically absolute within its own um, semiotic regime, would only extend as far as the boundaries of the state. Um, okay, so that's a number of good, good, good points and things to really cling on, cling on to. So when we're dealing with capital and how you just described it, there is um, what they they don't call a law of equivalence, but there is this um, kind of congruency occurring and that things are made equal under the banner or because of capital or because the flows of money. Uh, because if you can have things be exchanged for money, then that's a lot easier than exchanging berries for axes or whatever the example it is they give. Right. Uh, seeds for axes, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, so this process undergoes like a, a, a triple, there, there's a triple process from rent to profit to taxation that work in, to some extent, to arrive or to kind of ameliorate or catalyze this possibility for this law of equivalence to come about that would essentially be a, a breeding ground for the way that we understand capitalism today, I think, at least if yeah. I'm understanding it right. Uh, so in, in, uh, do you have anything to add to that? Cause I, I think, no, I think that's a good, uh, that's part of what we talked about last time, but it's good to connect it back up to our themes for today. So that was good. Right. So now all these things are necessary and these three different poles, and I use the term poles just, you know, for the sake of simplicity, but you have, uh, between rent and profit and taxation, they form in a sense, what they call the mega machine, mm -hmm. which is in a sense, this, the kind of apotheosis of this thing called the state that, you know, confronts, well, will confront, confront capitalism. And that's something we'll get into. What is that relationship between capital and the state? Uh, but what is exactly for you? What is the uh, mega machine? And how does it differ from these kind of older state formations that we were kind of describing if it does at all yeah okay so the mega machine uh, is something they they take from um, the work of Lewis Mumford and it also technically applies to the archaic state but um, it takes on an entirely new valence when it comes to uh, capitalism and it's axiomatic um, because and I'll try to explain what the differences are um, but Basically, the two regimes that pre-exist capitalism uh, with regard to the state um, function in slightly different ways, and, it, and it's through capitalism that they become complementary, whereas before they were opposed. 
So the mega machine as archaic state functions through the absolute uh, publicity of the sovereign, you might say, and the equivalent um, um, the equivalent collectivity of its population. So what that means is that I'm trying to describe something that they will later call the machinic enslavement. Um, but basically what it means is that there is no such thing as a private individual in the archaic state. Um, so that means that any particular citizen, citizen isn't even the right word because that refers to the city state. Yeah. Um, but any particular individual that belongs to the archaic state, um, is a part of the machine of that state by definition and, and within it functions always in relation to, um, the state as an object. Um, so it doesn't function as a subject within the state. Yeah. Um, yeah. in other words. So for example, um, in ancient Egypt, the slaves working on the pyramids, um, they might have driven ox carts, let's say as a hypothetical, but they wouldn't be seen any different than the cart or the ox in that regard. Yeah. Um, now, of course, they did have a categorical difference insofar as they were human beings. Obviously, people didn't confuse them with oxes. Um, but in terms of their function with regard to the labor that they performed, that labor was uniformly a part of a, a machinic enslavement, to use Deleuze and Guattari's term. Yeah. Um, which means that they weren't um, subject to a a moment of decision in which they were held responsible for their action, right? So the things that they performed uh, were determined by the state. Now, a naive interpretation would say like, okay, well, there's a pharaoh or a despot or whatever, and they're, they're the one that's the subject. And Deleuze and Guattari will say, no, they're every bit as much a part of the machine as, that's as the slave, yeah. right? They're no, they have no more uh, subjective right to renounce the throne or to not take up their position, yeah. whatever that position is. So even though the positions are differentiated, nobody has a choice. We could put it that way. Right. Um, with the second form, we see something different happening where um, whether or not it's coerced, uh, obviously we could argue that it's not voluntary but um in these other forms um the sub the subject uh emerges by virtue of the the structure of obligation that surrounds um the interactions in the state so this is why you see for example in in medieval europe the emergence of the merchant class right because they have a certain level of autonomy that um, that the state uh, actors say that the slaves in an archaic empire simply don't have. Um, but those in Guatri are interested in the way that this becomes symptomatic, symptomatic of the organization of the state as a whole. Um, so that the bond in this case becomes personal 
and it means that you're held responsible. So, and this bleeds into like the sort of classical enlightenment notions of, of what agency means uh, as an individual, right? And so these sorts of forms of law or codifications of um, land rights or whatever it might be, give the basis for private property. Yeah. Um, which is, I mean, it gives the basis for a lot of things, but that's the most important thing with regard to the sort of story that we're telling here. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the fact that it gives rise to this um, means that capitalism becomes possible, right? But, but to confuse capitalism with mercantilism uh, is a mistake in their view for this reason. Because for them, what what uh, symptomatic of capitalism is the making complementary of this version of machinic enslavement by the state and what they call social subjection um, in these other forms of the state, the second sort of regime of, of the state in history. Um, so what makes this possible, what makes the complementarity of these two things plausible, uh, it's what they call the axiomatic so the axiomatic determines a set of rules, you might say, um, which determine both economic policy um, on the level of states, but also it determines relations of production and the modulations of those um, in relation to modes and means. Uh, so for those not familiar with Marx, um, modes of production would be like factory work versus artisanal work or something like that relations of production would be um something i mean it has diverse uh ramifications but an easy example would be like capitalism uh sorry capital as a form that is to say the monetary form um exists as a as a global relation of production it's something on which um anyone who deals economically in some exchange has access to that form today um, even if the currencies may be different from one party to another and so on and so forth uh, barter would be another relation of production um, but more simple everyday things just like class class antagonisms would be another kind of relation of production although it would take a lot of argument to see how those two things are tied together. Yeah. Uh, means of production are um, also what they would call constant capital in this chapter. Um, and those are like things, those constitute things like technologies, uh, you know, factories, land would be a means of production depending on the economic situation, uh, real estate, um, basically forms of fixed capital, which is to say fixed value. Things that, uh, whether or not they enter into an exchange relationship, hold a kind of value. Um, and classically, for those Marxists out there, uh, the bourgeoisie are defined by, by the ownership of the means of production. So that was a bit of an aside. Um, But I think you give us something good about this um, discussion about machinic enslavement, where it seems as though 
at this point, like you gave us the example of the slaves, where they might not be differ, they, they might not differ in the eyes of who I don't know who's who, who's the one looking at them, you know, making this decision. Right. But let's say to anyone else, um, they might not differ from the ox or the or the cattle, or the or, or the carriage or whatever the wagon, um, and this would be uh, a moment of machinic enslavement. That is. The moment that these people are, in a sense, in di- can't be differentiated from the machines that they are a part of, where they are, um, and this, I, I'm anticipating where this conversation is going to go because this comes around full circle for Deleuze and Guattari to some extent, but that is uh, characteristically different from their discussion about social subjection, which we were kind of you were, you were kind of hinting at. Uh, and that is, we see from one moment to the to the next. We see, <laughs> we see from one moment to the next, or one kind of system to the next, the introduction of a kind of uh, subjectivity, but no less uh, repressive to some extent. But this subjectivity does not end there, where it's not as just a steady uh, move from machinic enslavement to social s- subjection, because as they make quite clear. Uh, enough social subjection actually propels people back into a degree of machinic enslavement where they almost disappear once again into flows yeah into what we might get to data maybe algorithms we will get to that Uh, i do want to say one thing about uh, the axiomatic uh, before we continue because i think it's important um so they're taking this word axiomatic um from mathematics i'll just say a little bit about it um don't worry, anyone who's already like shaking in their boots about the fact that I said the word math. Don't what? worry, there's not going to be any equations math. or anything. Um, but what it means for them, uh, it comes from basic, at least in one of its major instantiations, it comes from um, the development of set theory. But it has to do with the way in which uh, mathematical knowledge is codified in general. So, uh, as an easier example than the example of set theory, perhaps, uh, Euclid's elements um, was an example of the axiomatization of the Greek knowledge about geometry. So, at the beginning of his elements, he elaborates a few rules which are supposed to be um, exhaustive, cover the whole field of his inquiry, and are both um, unamenable to refutation as well as being primitive in the order of argument. Um, So, for example, the famous definition of a line, that it is the shortest distance between two points, is an axiom of geometry, Euclidean geometry. Um, those Those of you who might be a little more savvy about the history of mathematics know that Euclid's axioms, uh, had logical problems and that, um, basically all of 20th century mathematics was built off of the failure of Euclidean geometry. But can, uh, and they say um, that though, and, they say that axioms are in many ways they yeah. they're uh, well, like that, groping that, in the dark. Well, that'll be important for this. 
right? Um, because although they present the edifice of the accumulated knowledge of um, a given system, um, it was proven in the 30s by a mathematician named uh, Kurt Gödel, uh, Austrian mathematician, that you actually can't have a complete set of axioms for any system that's more complicated than like the most rudimentary even even the most rudimentary system of arithmetic includes axioms that might be true that are unprovable or undecidable as so they say if here. i already give an example like one plus one equals two yeah i where mean did, that one is that provable but that one's provable <laughs> that one, okay all right and it's not an axiom it's that's actually a theorem but um Nevertheless, we can use it as an example. Um, so things like that, um, things as simple as a point is, sorry, a line is the shortest distance between two points. Um, it very well may be true, but there's no systematic way. Uh, there might be no systematic way to show that, in fact, that is true of every possible case in which two points exist. So um, the way in which Euclid defined parallel lines, for example, is one such axiom that seemed obviously true. Um, it's just the point at which two lines never converge. Later in the 19th century and in the 20th centuries, a whole lot of work was done to show just how false that was. Right. Yeah. So there is always this case, there's always this lingering doubt that, um, especially given the results of mathematicians like Gödel, who showed that you can't have a, a system of axioms of any complexity, basically, that is both provable and true or complete. So either you've left something out or there's something that you've put in that you have no way to prove by virtue, because of course axioms determine what you, what you can say, yeah. what you can prove, yep. what you can know, yep. right? So this lack of fundamental self-reflexivity that you right. can't re you can't shore everything up, yeah, is part of the axiomatic itself. That becomes very important for ca the function of capitalism. But needless to say, um, by by analogy, their version means that um, the axiomatic is sort of um, the, the minimal structure that capitalism can provide to economic exchange in order to shore up uh, local... I was thinking about this earlier. It's sort of like um, the axiomatic provides topical law and global lawlessness. Um, so people have often talked about how capitalism, uh, there's no outside of capitalism, which is why it's so hard that what people also call sometimes real subsumption, which means that all, f all concurrent contemporaneous currently existing forms of life, um, are in a fundamental way determined by capitalism. And however true this may be. Um, it's actually not by virtue of capitalism, capitalism's inclusivity. Like it's not, it's not some earthly father that's 
giving us a big yeah. <laughs> hug or something. Yeah. And m- to my yeah. mind, it, it seems that it's true because there is no inside of capitalism. Right. Because there isn't anything particularly ger- germane. Like the domains of capitalism are not capitalism's domains, if that makes any sense. Um, and that's why it's included in this chapter on the formation of the state and why the title of the book is called Apparatus of Capture. Yeah. Sorry, the title of the chapter. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's why you always have local order effectuated by these axioms. Um, one of the functions of the axiomatic, they call addition and subtraction. So the axiomatic is always ready to be uh, remade, to be changed as ca- the case warrants. So you need a little, a little more order over here a little more uh, rigidity, a little more bureaucracy, fine. We can subtract a few over here. Yeah. So this is where you get the phenomenon of center and periphery in capitalism as well, where the center becomes more and more ordered. You get social democracy. You get more and more regulation of industry. You get more and more um, codification of uh, identity in terms of legal precedent Right. And on the periphery, you get Monsanto uh, (laughs) and the ownership of like, you know, uh, plant genes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, And the vicious circle of the agricultural people in India, for example, who have to deal with this. So you get local order, global lawlessness. Yeah. And that's the aim. Yeah. Um, So with that said. Um, we can see how this allows these two things to come together. Um, this machinic enslavement, which treats everything as a part, um, as well as this uh, function of social subjection by which you're made responsible um, for the things that you choose, for the, uh, for the contracts that you um, engage in, and so on. So I think big data is a perfect example of this Um, and the way in which, um, for example, uh, social media technologies have really struck an incredible blend of these two things um, in the first world. So we can see social subjection in these technologies everywhere or with apps or any of these other uh, of related technologies uh, for data mining and all of this. So, of course, you're totally responsible. N- who could deny it? Like, every time you buy an app, like, they give you terms of service and they tell you you're, they're updating their privacy policy and you click the button and you say, okay. So how could you not be responsible? At the same time, Um, you're treated by the virtue of these interfaces as a client, but in fact, you're not the client, you're the product. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And as a product, you are just a part of the machine. They don't care about you. They're not interested in you. You don't have any power. Um, not even as you don't even have any purchasing power because you're not buying anything. Yeah. They're interested in you as a source of information. Um, and so we see the way in which these topical forms of law get used for a general form of machinic enslavement, right? In which 
of course you agreed to it like who could say you're not responsible every legal every liberal legal precedent in the world is on the side of the companies for exactly those same reasons in the same way that every worker is responsible for the wages that they earn yeah because <laughs> they fucking agreed to yeah, do yeah, this yeah. work yeah. right uh in a way that the serf did not right or right. in a way that the the slave in ancient egypt building pyramids obviously did not mm-hmm. yeah and at the same time it's obviously not voluntary yeah um so there's an interesting parallel there as well um but of course what they're doing they're using you as a source of information um and then they use that information and they sell it to companies like google or whoever or google's taking it and selling it to someone else or facebook um and then they use that to advertise things to you and then of course the machinic enslavement redoubles back on the social subjection and there the argument they would make is well we're just giving you the things that you already want. Yeah. We knew before you yeah. even fucking wanted it. Um, but of course, they're not idiots. Like, they know that these things uh, have, they're vectorized. Yeah. They have directions to them. And so then they can always make a way to say, okay, we just, we're just giving you what you want. But like, you probably want the 15 cent thing and not the 10 cent thing. Yeah. And you go, yeah, of course. Yeah. The 10, the 15 cent thing, it's only five cents. Yeah. yeah, Right. Again, you're socially subjected to that. That was your choice. No one could deny it. Um, but you, you accumulate enough of those things together. And then the whole backlog of things that set the precedent for what it is that you want was determined by the company that was collecting data on you. Yeah. Right. So then, the machinic enslavement redoubles, right? So you chose everything every step of the way, but the choices you were given were determined in advance by something that was also socially subjected to you. Um, And then the prehistory, the things that make you genuinely interested in this or that thing, was also determined, right? So at the same time, you had no choice, Sorry, you had a choice at every step of the way, and still, the difference between it being voluntary or being forced, to put it in their language, is a nullity. Yeah. Right? Um, and so that is really the genius of capitalism, in a nutshell. Um, is And labor is just the most general and first instantiation of this problem. Mm-hmm. And Marx already saw this, in fact. Um, where he calls out, um, I think in the German ideology, certain sort of values that all of us would probably still hold on to. Things like um, equality, for example. And he will show how um, through a few different pretty obvious and transparent translations, how the function of equality as a value in a society has the direct correlate of you being as a worker substitutable right so it's convenient for you to believe in equality if the worker if sorry if the factory owner wants to be able to hire and fire you at any given moment yeah, exactly. and replace you with someone yeah, else you're expendable at yeah. that point um 
And of course, that comes with the whole function of um, of descaling in an industrial economy and all the rest of it. You can, if you start to think about it part by part, um, it becomes very widespread very quickly. Mm-hmm. So okay, I will ask this: um, when you give the example of Google or any other kind of like search engine or uh, social media is demonstrating this um, kind of cycle of uh, machinic enslavement and social subjection, it's all well and good. And it really hammers the issue home. I guess this is a little bit of a two-part question. How does, or when Deleuze and Guattari were writing this, they were kind of writing this at the genesis of what we now know as like Reagan or Thatcherism, kind of sure. neoliberal doctrine. Yeah, I was which I think origin be, of neoliberalism. Uh, like within the decade that that was kind of... Be- mm-hmm. Because this was 80, 81, I think. 81? Yeah. Uh, so within about 10 years of that, we saw this this uh, this thing emerging, right? Uh, <clears throat> so what is different? I, I mean, you weren't alive at that time. I, I wasn't alive at that time. I wasn't. 1980, actually. 1980. Mm-hmm. What what was different then between, you know, what we were would have seen then right. and this example now? Because it seems like... Yeah, it's a nice like it's convenient, but I'm wondering. It is well. I, I mean, honestly, I mean, I think. I mean, obviously, I'm partial, but um, I mean, I still think their political analyses or their their political economic analyses, I should say, are about the general goings on. Yeah, are still unrivaled, and you can hold my feet to the flames on that one if you want to. I'm happy to go to town. Um, but that said, I mean, obviously things have changed. I'm not denying that either. Um, so this is what I would say. Um, there's a good example here. Um, page 458 for you guys following along at home. But um, they say this. For example, one is subjected to TV insofar as one uses and consumes it. In the very particular situation of a subject of the statement that more or less mistakes itself for a subject of enunciation. Quote, this is them in the mouthpiece of the TV executive. Uh, you, dear television viewers, who make it, who make TV what it is. The technical machine is the medium between two subjects. But one is enslaved by TV as a human machine, insofar as the television viewers are no longer consumers or users. Um, nor even subjects who supposedly make it, um, but intrinsic component pieces, input and output, feedback or occurrences that are no longer connected to the machine in such a way as to produce it or use it. Um, so while that that is certainly, in my view, true, and it's true by virtue of the social setup uh, of the TV or the broadcast medium, it's infinitely more true of the supposedly interactive um, technologies that we all use every day now, right? So TV is sort of like the pale imitation of this phenomenon by comparison to things like social media. Yeah. Um, So I would say the difference there are genuine qualitative differences, but they happen by virtue of differences in the intensification of the already existing um, formal structure. So how could that relate then to the just the general logic of capitalism? Because um, 
you know, Marx has these very, these fundamental tenets about uh, how to how to define capitalism, right? And I don't remember them off the top of my head, but it's kind of like, uh, it has to uh, rely on real human labor. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, there has to be the drive for profit, stuff like that. Yep. So what is it that Deleuze and Guattari are describing that isn't just like a rehashing of Marx? Mm-hmm. Like, what is it that's, um, I don't know what yeah. the, like, it, I think I know what you're alcove, saying. alcove. Like right. That, that, so, I mean, they have, first of all, it's obvious that they have a great respect for Marx, but, um, <laughs> but secondly, um, they're realizing that, you know, uh, human labor was not the transcendental site of value that perhaps Marx thought it was. Um, and that this is when they talk about the relationship between, um, you know, uh, autom- making things automatic, which is the function of industrial capital. Um, and then the second wave of the advent of automation in factory work itself. Um, that that actually that actually Marx had an unfounded belief in the inextricable um, ground of value in the activity of human beings. And what Deleuze and Guattari are starting to recognize is the fact that surplus value, while still fundamentally at the moment dependent on human beings, is not necessarily dependent on them. Yeah. Um, And that is a profound... A profoundly terrifying thought for yeah. human populations because if we become economically obsolete um, in virtue of these profit motives that provide that that signals extreme social problems for all of us um, or at least almost every one of us I should say so when you say that not dependent on humans, you mean like, uh, like what we understand to be humans, like biological humans, or uh, the moment that humans, as biological humans, are not no, they aren't, they're stripped of their humanity, in that way. Um, right. So there's a few distinctions to make here, but what I mean is that um, these things are interconnected in my mind. Mm, yeah. But so yeah. for Marx, um, the relationship between the human's labor power or his capacity to have or their capacity to have labor excuse me um and their subjectivity are inextricably linked so that um the reason that um alienation is a problem for marx for example is because it denudes a human being's subjectivity from the product of their labor right which is to say that since there since the labor process by virtue of mechanization and by virtue of the division of labor um, has become mediated extremely um they know no the proletariat let's say which is the laboring class um are no longer able to recognize themselves in the things that they make yeah this causes psychic dissonance and this is that dissonance or that's that sasura in the psyche of the subjectivity of the laborer is the th- is the place in which ideology can install itself, but it's also the place for Marx where revolutionary like, potential exists, right? Uh, what Deleuze and Guattari are aiming at in a few passages is the idea that 
whether or not your labor is alienated. Um, Marx had an uncritical belief about the foundation of surplus residing in human labor, right? Um, and they're showing that by virtue of certain of these processes, which is to say the move from uh, less and less variable capital to more and more constant capital, yeah. um, that surplus is actually derivable from constant capital in the form of automation. Right. And that, and that causes... That poses a, a paradigm-altering problem yeah. in, in political and economic thought and activity, for that matter. Yeah, because um, for, for Marx, the problem was that as far as automation went, you wouldn't be able to extract surplus labor from automation because they could only, or like a robot or a machine, mm-hmm. could, only, uh, could only put out what essentially was put into it. Where you wouldn't be able to extract the kind of surplus you would from real human labor, right? Uh, so that, you know, that what Deleuze and Guattari really present us here, at least with their um, conceptualization of this autom- automatism, is that really, yeah, I think you, you hit the nail on the head in that it describes a really profound change in this thing called capital. But in in many ways, it, and I don't think that's why I don't think Marxists don't like to take these guys up because you know that. Or hardcore Marxists, that is. Faithful Marxists. Sure. <laughs> Don't like to take this stuff up because it, it really throws a wrench in the whole thing uh, precisely because it... Well, it throws a wrench that. in the whole classical ideal about both historical determinism and just the conceptualization of, uh, of class dynamics in general. Yeah. It th- like, because that is the principal side for classical Marxists through which revolution is supposed to be effectuated. But the only bargaining chips the proletariat have are the fact that they are the ground of value. Yeah. Full stop. Yeah. And if they lose that, they what do they have? Right? But then how did okay? How did then we make sense of the possibility that if suddenly uh, corporations found a way to I don't know extract uh, profit from non-human actors? Mm-hmm. Who do they sell these yeah, products well, that's, to? Well, that would be the secondary. That would be the and. A very valuable corollary to ask oneself. So, I mean, we'll just see. Because they have to maintain it. Consumption, consumption, can consumption be automated? That is, that is a question that remains. That's a. We'll leave it for Black Mirror. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I mean, if you guys haven't seen the show, there is an episode that breaches this topic. Which one? Um, Maybe it's not Black. I I think it's Black Mirror. There's an post-apocalyptic one where. Um, these these automated factories decide that the human actors, because they have taken issue with the way in which um, the way in which the automated factories are running, because they're because they're only driven by pro- basically blind profit motive. They don't even know that yeah. it's profit motive, um, and so they're they're overproducing. They're causing like ecological catastrophe, right? Um, but as soon as the humans object, even though they're ostensibly servicing the humans, as soon as the humans object, um, it gets in the way of the overproduction, which becomes, which is the motor of their blind profit motive. So right, they invent, right. they invent, um, is that the one with the little dogs? A category of, it's, they don't invent producers, I guess. They just like, they just ignore the 
the pleas of the humans and just keep servicing them. I don't remember it, that one. Um, so this whole this whole other underground sort of um, like humanist revolt happens. It's an interesting watch. I mean, it's it's theoretically flawed, but I mean, it can't, <laughs> you can't we can't blame it too much, right? Netflix show right? Yeah. at this point now. Um, um, anyhow, so I'll just give you one little piece here on the subject. Um, so this is four fifty eight. Um, in the organic composition of capital, vario- variable capital defines a regime of subjection of the worker, which we already talked about, and that's the regime of human surplus value. The principal framework of which is the business of the factory, of the business or the factory, excuse me. Um, but with the but with automation comes a progressive increase in the proportion of constant capital. Something I basically mentioned. Uh, we then see a new kind of enslavement. At the same time, the work regime changes, surplus value becomes machinic, and the framework and the framework expands to all of society. So, that's another thing that we failed to mention, but has become the subject of much, a huge amount of work, is how the strict relations of production that you might have once found in the factory or the office or whatever have become completely diffuse, right? In terms of, because of course, uh, you know, manufacturing companies or, or IT companies or whatever, um, you know, they're all interested in exactly the same thing. They don't care about the thing that they're doing. They care about the thing that they're getting. And insofar as they can modulate whatever it is that they're doing to get more of what they care about getting, namely money in the form of profit by virtue of the structure of capitalism, um, then that means that the whole content of production is up for grabs, right? So we don't need to be focusing on the real economy because financialization is more lucrative, right? And if making money is what the economic substrate um, is what drives the economic substrate, then the real economy only matters insofar as it can become profitable. It doesn't matter if it provides um, cheaper goods and services to human beings who need them, for example, right? Yeah. And so we see this diffusion of production, especially in the first world, um, in the form of intellectual labor, effective labor, and in the form of things like uh, Facebook, um, where, you know, people are providing content uh, for free because they think that they're getting or YouTube. They think they're getting a service for nothing, but they're actually providing one. Right. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, because if you um, if you aren't paying for something, then you are in many ways. You become the commodity. You become the thing that because uh, someone's got to make money somehow. So if there's anything that you're using and you think that you're getting uh, the long end of the stick because you aren't paying for it then you should be um, very wary. But the possibility that someone is profiting off of your dumbass on it, uh, to put it quite brutally. But in the, okay, in the last, like the last few lines. Of the chapter. Of the chapter. Mm-hmm. They say, they give us some hope. At least that's how I read it. That's yeah, how I do. read it. They do. Uh, yeah, so 
I mean, I think there's some really good stuff uh, in the section on minorities as well, but we can skip over that because it's pretty complicated and we haven't talked about it at all. Um, but give us your hope, David. Well, the, I'm I'm just I'm just putting it out there. I mean, we don't have to follow it like um, chronologically. I mean, we could bounce around a bit, but it seemed as though they were saying that you know this becoming possibility, the possibility of becoming. Um, at least in relation to these various technologies like radio, for instance, where they say, you know, becoming radio or something as this um, kind of emancipatory potential. Or as they put it, so some people invoke the high technology of the world system of enslavement, but even and especially this machinic enslavement abounds in undecidable propositions and movements that, far from belonging to a domain of knowledge reserved for sworn specialists, provides so many weapons for the becoming of everybody and everything, becoming radio, becoming electronic, becoming molecular. Every struggle is a function of all the undecidable propositions and constructs or evolutionary connections in opposition to the conjunctions of the axiomatic. So do we get a sense there, and this is what I'm curious about, do we get a sense that they are hopeful about the various opportunities offered by this system or this current setup yeah i mean that's up to your reading i suppose i mean i think what's undeniable is that they see that there are potentials uh and by virtue of the fact that the axiomatic is never complete yeah yeah, yeah. is never um is never fully provable um this always leaves that cicera right for example, the Cicero, the alienation left for Marx. That, For them, that would be a vector of revolution in Marx's time, and he was right to call it that, right? He was right to see that um, class relations in their own vec- in their own space, in, in that circumstance, had absolute relative, uh, revolutionary potential, right? Um, and... I don't think he's wrong. I don't think they're wrong to say that there are, um, especially in from the from the standpoint of 1980, to say that there were uh, revolutionary potentials in broadcast media, for example. Um, I think it's increasingly hard, harder and harder to say that today, to see the internet as a site of liberatory potential. Yeah, especially in the way that you're like you've just described it. Like, there was a, you know, when they were thinking about it back in the day, mm-hmm. you know, 50 years ago, and I, I guess it would be 50 years ago, um, maybe we could attach to these various objects this this kind of potential, but it still begs the question as to who, for, you know, for whom this would, you know, be possible for, where I think of various uh, different possibilities offered to different people, and that really opens up a bigger question about minorities that you alluded to briefly yeah where minorities serve a kind of set purpose in this in this system or the existence of minorities just as the existence of the third world that they that they touch upon um Mm -hmm. it serves a purpose where i think there'd be a tendency by some to see various uh zones as existing outside of the system or being like uh, a kind of uh, zone of possibility and i think that that's taken up by some you know, even people who want to get away from it all or free themselves. Uh, whereas for Deleuze and Guattari, that's not quite the case. At least that's how I understand it. Yeah. Um, in many ways, these these zones serve the purpose of uh, 
um, reinforcing the system in some capacity or another. Uh, yeah, they certainly. I mean, so it should. I should be. I should say that they um, they make a careful distinction between um, minorities as they relate to majorities and what they call minoritization or or the minor um, in different yeah. places in the text. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and these things intersect in complicated ways, but uh, suffice it to say that minorities in the pejorative sense um, are defined in relation to the nameless majority, uh, which is, of course, um, I mean, I think they call it the, um, you know, basically the straight white male, um, but they would add to that adult and maybe like in, that, in, the, in, the, in, in their own time over 35 Right, the worker too. The yes, worker yeah, the over worker. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, you know, they didn't know anything about um, things that we've learned with regard to like cisgenderism or heteronormativity. But that would also you'd add that to the pile, obviously. Sure. As well. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so there's there's a function of minority that serves the purpose of the majority, and it serves that purpose by reacting in virtue of that majority and being defined in relation to that majority. Um, there's this other process of minoritization um, in which uh, it, it no longer takes on a quantitative function that has a qualitative valence in the case of like say you know uh, in the scares, which they also bring up, which apparently was already a scare in France in 1980, but the scares of white political pundits in the United States saying that, like, for example, Mexicans are going to yeah. outnumber them in whatever, 2030 or 2025 or who cares yeah. when. Yeah. Um, what's more interesting for them is the way in which these things become defined precisely not in relation to the majority. And yeah. that's what makes them minor. Yeah. Um, and this, for them, has very real liberatory potential. Not the least uh, reason, because for them, literally everyone um, has the potential to view themselves in this way and to collectively organize themselves in this way. So, um, so they ask the question like, well, who fits into the, the, the sort of like form of the majority? And their answer is no one, no one really. Of course, there are people who benefit from it and people who obviously do not benefit from it. Um, but, um, their case the case that they're trying to make, if I could go back to the text for a minute. No, oh, for sure. Because um, I'll fill in a blank there. Well, not a blank, but uh, something that you touched on, that uh, being a minority has nothing at all to do with numbers. Right. Um, so one of the things they say is that they're, and I think, I think they touch upon it, um, that, you know, white people fear becoming the minority like numbers wise, percentage wise in their in their population. And this is something I certainly see various 
places on the internet uh, where they say like that there's no correlate between um, uh, a group occupying the numerical minority mm-hmm. and their minority status. Like right. there's no connection. Because we could absolutely imagine, for example, in the states, uh, the Mexican population outweighing the white population, um, which of course, even the idea of a white population is an, a total abstraction that yeah. people have bought into yeah, yeah. very hugely. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, before before they were in the United States, there was no white population. There was, like, a bunch of different kinds of Europeans yeah, that yeah, all, yeah. like, disagreed with their own senses of identity, right? And they were all... That, the, the idea of whiteness... Like, and this, this really follows, in many ways, you know, the, uh, the development of the... Or the advent of the human. Like, uh, people from different societies... And I'm not saying that this was, like, a good thing. And I said that we should go back to this. But, um... Uh, and what... I can illustrate this with an example. So I was reading a book recently that was suggesting that people from different tribes at one point would, when they made contact with one another, didn't necessarily know if they were making contact with other humans or if they were making contact with animals, gods, kings, because there were these kinds of differentiations at that time, where the idea that, you know, all upright or erect standing beings with you know, primates, ears and noses that can mm-hmm. utter words in a pattern type way are humans, then that, that, that just came about very recently. Yeah. And then we were able to couple all that together. And then the same with, with whiteness where, you know, for a while, the, the example that you know, white conservatives like to use, like uh, the Irish people were so oppressed, like the, the Irish people right. were considered like sure. human, like, but there is a point there to be made that the idea of whiteness, at least in that context. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, of course, the, these conservatives were the same people who were uh, uh, leading, quote unquote, nativists, which means like white Anglo-Saxon Protestant um, groups in this case, uh, you know, in the 1850s and 1890s and so on. Uh, we're leading you know, rallies and marches against the Irish precisely for this reason. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, things fucking change. That's for sure. But, uh, is that to say that, um, so what Deleuze and Guattari are getting at here isn't that like, you know, oh, everyone's had their day of oppression, and like <laughs> then, ev- so therefore, every everything's equal. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Uh, not at all. Um, because what they want to say, in fact, is that um, the function of the majority, and this comes from other plateaus, but the function of the majority, uh, or if w- what they would probably also call Western racism, as opposed to say the um, the othering of non-Western peoples in certain circumstances um, is is the function of inclusivity, actually, um, and that's why you get things in the states and in Canada, like in the states you get the melting pot, and in Canada you get multiculturalism or whatever, mm-hmm. um, right? Where it's like um, assimilation becomes integral to the function of racism, right? And, and it's 
And it's the it's when somebody chooses to exclude themselves from that that they become a minority. Right. That they become minor in the positive sense that Dillas and Guatri are trying to get at. Um, and the, that holds liberatory potential, which is totally widespread, yeah. actually, and not a function of this or that group. Yeah. Or, and, okay, and they say it... Um, but it's always a collective value. It's never something that, like, you know, an individual just can't choose, right? It's not about choice, even, you might say. So they're... And they're task or their uh their project at least for them that um the liberatory project or the kind of resistant resistive one associated with this idea of being uh, minoritarian or becoming minoritarian is um the process by which a group or a person becomes non-denumerable they become they, they don't fit into the calculated under the auspices of a of a certain like um uh, freedom, right? So the the freedom of multiculturalism and the freedom of offered by Canada is really fantastic example about that or, or for that. Um, really seeing you mm-hmm. know, beneath the veneer of that because of course open because of course that open structure is uh, is I mean it, it it can't possibly live up to its promise. Yeah. So of course it says. Oh, yeah, like, for example, for indigenous people, we would love for you to celebrate your cultural heritage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which, I mean, who would, I mean, aside from the pathological, like, who would want to negate that yeah. idea? Um, but, of course, celebrating your cultural heritage in Canada does not mean having a separate economic system. It does not mean being truly sovereign. Yeah. It does not mean... A whole host of things, which would be presupposed in a pre-colonial form of life, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a bit like Henry Ford. To wrap it all up with a good capitalist metaphor or analogy, <laughs> it's a bit like Henry Ford when he released the Model T, the most popular car in the world at the time, saying, "You can have your car any color you want as long as it's black." <laughs> That's there we go. Those those are our options. Well, well, shit. I mean, I don't I don't want to screw that up. So for anyone that actually listened this far, good on you. Uh, I hope you got something out of this. I know I did, uh, as I do with every talk with Curtis. Um, but if you have any comments, you know how to leave it. I don't care if you subscribe. Uh, leave a comment. That's what I appreciate, uh, and I hope to hear from you. But until next time, take care.